If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar. Following the attack on Pearl Harbour in December 1941, the Japanese-American population faced increased scrutiny, prejudice, and for tens of thousands of them, years of internment in concentration camps. Nevertheless, many young Japanese-American men willingly signed up to fight for the United States, and their tale is told in Facing the Mountain by the best-selling author Daniel James Brown. I spoke to Daniel about the battles they faced on the front line and that their families faced back home. Prior to the attack on Pearl Harbour, how would you describe the situation of the Japanese-American population? Before uh, the beginning of World War II, before the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, Japanese-Americans, like most American immigrants from different parts of the world, were pretty much at the bottom of the totem pole socially. They were typically hardworking families who were either farming land along the West Coast or running a small business like a laundry or a flower shop or something like that, trying to make their way and trying to climb into the American middle class. There was quite a bit of pre-existing anti-Asian sentiment even before Pearl Harbor. There was a long history going back to the gold rush days in California when Chinese immigrants were met by a great deal of violence and anti-Asian sentiment, uh, some pretty vicious rhetoric, but actually a lot of um, physical encounters too. So there was a pre-existing level of anti-Asian sentiment that Japanese Americans or Japanese immigrants had to sort of deal with. But of course, all that exploded uh, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And just before we get on to Pearl Harbor, do you think we need to distinguish between the populations in Hawaii and the mainland of America? Yeah, they were really quite different. There was a large Japanese immigration to Hawaii beginning in the late 19th century. And those folks uh, mostly wound up uh, working in the sugarcane fields in was was a plantation system. And it was a very racially stratified uh, arrangement and the working conditions were absolutely brutal in the cane fields. So their offspring, second generation uh, Japanese Americans, the Nisei, they grew up also working in the cane fields like their parents to some extent, but they were beginning to integrate more into American life in Hawaii. So typically going to public high schools and uh, things like that. Part of what's interesting about the Japanese American population in Hawaii is that they universally spoke a pidgin, a a Hawaiian Creole called pidgin English, um, which is a compounded language of uh, English and Portuguese and Japanese and a dozen or so different languages. 
So there, that was their experience growing up uh, in and around the cane fields in Hawaii on the plantation system. The um, Japanese immigrants who moved to the west coast of the United States, as I said, they, they typically ran small businesses or farmed patches of land. Their children, their Nisei children, were more typically American uh, middle-class kids. They typically uh, were uh, going to um, universities on the West Coast in many cases or helping to um, run the farm or helping to run the small business that their parents owned. So culturally, they were sort of more aligned with what we think of as typical middle-class American lifestyle and values, you know, of the of the first half of the 20th century. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor takes place December 1941. What does this mean for how Japanese Americans are perceived in the country? Yeah, so, you know, immediately in the immediate aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor, it unleashed what, I, as I mentioned, was this sort of pre-existing anti-Asian uh, sentiment uh, and rhetoric that had evolved over the preceding um, several decades of American history. And it was vicious. I mean, there was just absolutely um, no holds barred uh, attacks on um, Japanese Americans. I mean, literal attacks in some cases on their persons, but mostly just a lot of very racist um imagery and language in the press, in the uh, in Hollywood, in all aspects of American life. They were um, equated with uh, insects and rats and snakes and vermin of various kinds. So there was this torrent of hatred aimed at anybody of Japanese descent, um, whether they were American citizens or not. And, th- and this totally ignored the fact that many of these Japanese Americans were actually hugely patriotic and were really willing to serve in the U.S. Army following the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yes, and so that was part of what I was very focused on in in my book was the uh, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, it created a real dilemma for young me- Japanese American men of draft age, in particular. Many of them. Uh, went down to their uh, selective service offices like millions of other young American men and tried to enlist uh, in the weeks following Pearl Harbor. Um, And they were told that they couldn't. They were told, in fact, that they were categorized as enemy aliens, they were called. And so this and this horrified many of them. Um, they, they really wanted to serve and they weren't allowed to. So um, it created a dilemma. At the same time, their families were beginning to be incarcerated in these camps. And so it was a long year of real angst and um, confusion for particularly young Japanese American men following the attack before finally in 1943, the um, Roosevelt administration reversed course and decided to allow a um, allow Japanese Americans to enlist. So this was an official government policy that uh, Japanese Americans would be put yeah, essentially in camps within the United States. And some of these people were American citizens. Did this not violate their constitutional rights? It absolutely, it absolutely did. Yes, and there, there was. I mean, there was a great deal of debate within the Roosevelt administration about whether to uh, incarcerate 
uh, hundred somewhere between 110 and 120,000 uh, people in these what were basically concentration camps. There was there was quite a bit of debate, um, but in the long run, the military planners within the administration won out, and and they did carry that plan out. But yes, um, it was. Uh, it was quite clearly a, um, a violation of several constitutional principles. And so um, the other side of the story in many ways, as I say, many young men of Japanese descent wanted to enlist. There were also many young Japanese American men uh, who did not want to enlist. And later when the government tried to draft them, they, they resisted the draft on principle. Uh, they they felt that they should not be um, serving uh, in the military of government that um, was continuing to keep their families and in many cases themselves behind barbed wire. So, so it was a debate within the Japanese uh, American community, a very fierce debate actually as to what the right thing to do was. And the camps of their families and often these young men themselves were forced to live in. What kind of conditions were they like? The conditions in these camps were really quite severe, quite harsh. Um, initially, people were put in what they called assembly centers, which were um, fairgrounds and racetracks where people often were made to live in horse stalls and extremely primitive living conditions. But ultimately, they were all sent to um, 10 uh, permanent camps scattered through the American West, all of them in um, amazingly bleak, hostile places and desert conditions. So places that were very cold in the winter and very, very hot in the summer. They lived in barracks, very sparse barracks, rooms that were, I believe, 20 feet by 20 feet. Uh, Whole families had to live basically in one room in these barracks. It was almost like a POW camp, actually. There was barbed wire around the perimeter of most of these camps. There were guard towers with um, men with machine guns um, controlling entrance and exit from the camps. They were not Auschwitz or Dachau. They were not uh, slave labor or death camps. But the, but the living conditions were, were very, uh, very harsh, very primitive. Were German-Americans or Italian-Americans subject to similar restrictions in terms of whether they could join the army or being put into camps as the Japanese-Americans were? That's that's part of what's very interesting about this, is a very small number of German-Americans and German nationals and Italian-Americans and Italian nationals, a very small number were um, incarcerated. Those were all people, though, who for one reason or another, the government had some reason to suspect that they might be um, actively disloyal, like, you know, planning sabotage. Um, and their numbers were very small. Whereas with the Japanese and Japanese Americans, literally everybody uh, on the West Coast, grandmothers to infants, um, were incarcerated in these camps. Um, so it was uh, it was really entirely, um, uh, really racially motivated. Uh, it was easier to distinguish, obviously, Japanese or Asian people from the general population than uh, German Americans or, or Italian Americans. All Americans ultimately are some kind of hybrid um, of different nationalities. But it was only the Japanese that were uh, systematically and uniformly um, 
rounded up and removed from their homes. So despite uh, these restrictions, these limitations that were placed on the lives of Japanese Americans, as your book details, a large number of young men did go on to fight for the United States. What was motivating them? Was it still residual patriotism or was it to show their country that they were loyal? That, you know they could be trusted yeah those who signed up had a had several different motives um some of these young men volunteered out of the camps they were actually um already in the camps when they volunteered um they tended to fall into one of those two camps basically either they just were still gung-ho to serve their country the fact that their their families were in camps were not necessarily uh, a big factor for them but for many other of these young men, um, what had happened to them was very much a motivating factor. They wanted to um, prove to the country that they were loyal Americans like any others. And they also felt, um, many of these young men felt that if they went to war and um, fought and suffered and bled and as it turned out in many cases died, that at least at the end of the war, Japanese uh, Americans and their parents, their Japanese parents, would be accorded more respect and, um, and, and treated better than they had been before the war. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The Germans began to fear them as sort of out of proportion with their fear of other American units, and they came to call them the Little Iron Men. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Once these men joined the United States Army, were they allowed to serve with the other soldiers or were they segregated into specific units? So they, they were segregated. Um, in um, January of 1943, uh, the Roosevelt administration finally decided um, there were all these young men who wanted to serve. Uh, the country was anxious to build the army up you know, as much as they could, as quickly as they could. Um, but what they decided to do was to create an all a segregated all Japanese American um, unit called the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Now I say it was all segregated. In fact, most of the officers were were white. Um, there were a, a very small number of people of Japanese ancestry who became officers during the course of the war. But the officer corps basically was white. And the enlisted men were um, all Japanese American. And I realize they served in several different places, but what were some of the key campaigns that this unit participated in? So um, after basic training um, in Mississippi, they were sent first to um, Italy, which 
the American and British armies were um, fighting their way, the Allied armies were fighting their way um, up the Italian boot. So the the 442nd arrived just as Rome was being uh, liberated and joined the war at that point, basically. So they fought a series of battles um, through Tuscany up the um, western side of the Italian boot as far north as the Arno River and Pisa. And then they were, um, they were shipped um, from Italy up to northern France to the French-German border, where the, uh, the Allies were beginning to press uh, uh, towards Germany. And uh, they fought there in the Vosges Forest, a particularly interesting and ferocious um, battle there uh, in the Vosges Forest. Um, and then towards the end of the war, they were sent back uh, to, uh, most of them were sent back to Italy where they uh, continued to fight their way, their way north until finally the Germans surrendered in the Po Valley. So there were basically three campaigns, a first Italian campaign, a French-German campaign, and then um, a second Italian campaign. And as your book shows, they fought with tremendous bravery and were one of the most decorated units of the war. Are there any particular instances of heroism that you'd like to highlight? Yes, I think I, that that I'll talk just for a moment, if I may, about that battle uh, in the Vosges forest. Um, they, they There came a point in that they were tasked with liberating a French village called Bruyere, which was the intersection of a railroad line and a uh, uh, highway. This was October of 1944. It was cold and rainy and really miserable fighting conditions. They fought for days. They liberated this town. They pushed a little deeper into the Vosges forest. And uh, they were told that they could um, have a, a, a night or two of rest. But they were awakened in the middle of the night on the second night and told they had to go back into combat. What had happened was the commanding general uh, General Dahlquist, had sent a um, large contingent of soldiers from Texas deeper into the Vosges forest than he should have. And they had been cut off and surrounded on all sides by uh, the Germans. There are about 200 of these Texas soldiers. And uh, many of them were wounded. Um, some of them had gangrene. Uh, they began to die. They ran out of food. They ran out of medical supplies. They had no drinkable water. So General Dahlquist had sent one unit after another up into the this mountaintop where they were trapped trying to get them out, and, uh, and none of them could. So finally, he awakened um, the 442nd, the Japanese-American unit that already had um, acquired a, a tremendous reputation for their uh, military valor and their abilities. Uh, so he awakened the Nisei soldiers and sent them up that mountain. And it was just an absolutely hellacious battle. They they were fighting their way uphill the whole way, again, in sleet and snow and um, miserable conditions. They took staggering casualties. But they did finally break through and get the Texans out of there and brought them back down the mountain. So they were... Um, that was the first time, really, there were some newsreel cameras there that recorded the Texans coming off the mountain. And those newsreels were played back in the United States and also in France and, and probably in Britain, too. And um, that was the first time the 442nd really began to gain some 
uh, awareness in the American public, at least, of what of what they had done, and they were they were quite celebrated for that. And so, then, did that have the effect of changing American perceptions of Japanese Americans? You know, I wish I could say it did. I think for millions of Americans, it did, but I think, unfortunately, for millions more, it. It didn't. The fact was that when these men returned from the war, those who survived it, and their parents and their families came out of these camps, in more cases than not, when they when they came back to California or Oregon or Washington or wherever they had come from, in many cases they were met with the same kind of. Um, rhetoric and shunning and in some cases outright violence that um, that they'd experienced before the war. In fact, a lot of these families were afraid to leave the camps as the war was winding down because they they feared that the reception back home would be not not favorable. So you know it, there certainly were many people that that did um, celebrate them, but there was so much animosity still, uh, particularly people re- remembering Pearl Harbor, which you know these American Japanese American kids were somehow blamed for, um, that, that it was really tough sledding uh, for most of those families. Then during the battles themselves, how were the Japanese Americans viewed by their predominantly German opponents? Uh, that was that was interesting. Uh, they acquired quite a reputation amongst the Germans after those. The first series of battles in uh, Italy, in Tuscany, they were always um, fighting their way up the side of some hill. You know, Tuscany, at every hill has a little hilltop town. And so for months, they kept having to fight their way uphill against Germans who were entrenched at the top of some hill or mountain and, and take those positions. And they did so so successfully so many times that the Germans, the Germans began to fear them as sort of out of proportion with uh, their their fear of other American units, and they came to call them they called them the little Iron Men. Um, I don't know how you say that in German, but that was the nickname um, that they gave them. So so they were um, they were feared uh, by by many of the German units. In fact, when they were sent back to Italy the second time, uh, they were sent uh, secretly. They were sent under cover of darkness. They were, they'd move at night and sleep in barns and such in the daytimes as they came up towards the German lines because the uh, American commanders wanted to surprise the Germans with the fact that the uh, the Nisei soldiers had suddenly reappeared in uh, in Italy. And then in the years subsequent to World War II, was ever an apology offered or any compensation offered to people who had been forcibly imprisoned during the war? It took decades. Um, There was a long campaign and and it failed uh, multiple times to have some sort of formal apology or some formal acknowledgement of what had happened. Um, but eventually, uh, beginning in the 1980s, uh, what happened was a lot of the veterans of the 442nd began to go to Washington, D.C. and directly lobby congressmen and senators. And by that time, there actually a number of Japanese Americans had um, become U.S. senators 
or congressmen. So there were some um, Japanese American representatives by that point. So by the 1980s, um, they finally uh, began to make some headway. And ultimately, yes, the uh, government finally issued an apology and they uh, ultimately paid uh, every individual who'd been incarcerated in one of these camps. Um, I believe it was $20,000 in what they called reparations. Um, but as I say, it took decades for that to happen. And in writing this book, you've, of course, spoken to many Japanese Americans, including families, those who fought. How do they look back on this episode now? You know, so that was interesting. Um, the The generation that fought the war or resisted um, the incarcerations were the Nisei generation, the second generation. And I have many um, friends who are Sansei, who are the third generation. And almost uniformly, they tell me that their parents never talked about either the camps or uh, if their fathers had fought in the war, almost never talked about it. The, so the Nisei generation on the whole, after the war and after coming out of the camps, they just wanted to move on. Um, and it was partly a cultural thing, I think, but they really didn't want to talk about it and seldom talked about it with their with their children. But the Sansei, the next generation has been very, and subsequent generations have been very interested in sort of bringing this story back out and having it told because I think they feel correctly, I think, that it's really an important part of American history that um, because their parents didn't want to talk about it and the government really didn't want to talk about it, um, a lot of Americans have grown up with very little awareness. I mean, I think most Americans have some awareness that there were these camps, but probably do not know anything about the uh, 442nd and don't really understand um, what that camp experience, what being removed from your home was like for all these people. So it's it's been a process, I'd say, in the last two decades of the story being told more and more by subsequent generations. And I know that your story is focusing specifically on the Japanese-American experience, but do you think it offers any broader points about minority groups within countries, particularly under times of stress, such as when a war breaks out? Yes. I mean, the whole time that I was writing this book, it, I began writing this book, actually working on it about the same time that the uh, Trump administration came into power here. And so there was all this anti-immigrant rhetoric in the air at the same time that I was writing about and thinking about and talking to people about their parents' immigrant experience. Um, there was all this, these families at our southern border being torn apart um, at the same time that I was reading about and writing about families being torn apart by these incarcerations. So, so one of the things, you know, I've certainly learned from writing the book is that um, there were a lot of echoes between the past and the present for me as I was working on this project. And, you know, as I stand back from it now that the book is finished, a book's not going to change the world, but I'm, I'm hopeful that by becoming more acquainted with this story that um, more Americans will begin to understand that this is a cycle that we have been through. As I say, back since the gold rush days, we've had these waves of anti-immigrant 
in some cases anti-Asian, but also anti-other kinds of immigrants. Uh, these waves have occurred in American history over and over. It is usually done in the same way. There's a certain kind of language and propaganda that is sort of weaponized against whatever group is, you know, the other. And it's just a cycle that we in this country have been in for a long time. And I'm hopeful that, you know, by by making stories like this more widely known, that maybe it has some effect on, on dampening that. That was Daniel James Brown. Facing the Mountain, The Forgotten Heroes of World War II, is out now published by Viking. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when we'll be exploring the history of Canada. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.